This episode of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike is brought to you by Dream Symbols, manufacturers of handmade, hand-hammered symbols at very affordable prices. So please follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for at Dream Symbols and check them out. What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 110 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining us shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up, we'll talk about the basics of jazz comping. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Gavin Wallace Aylesworth from the band Bent Knee. In our gear review section, Mike and I will take a look at the company Outlaw Drums. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Do I sound like I have a cold? You do a little bit. What's going on? I, Allergies? I have a cold. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, I think it was just, you know, the once a year, it, it finally catches up to you, all the camps and all the travel oh, and yeah. stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of scared because I'm, I'm heading to Nashville tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And I've got... So here's my day. On Friday, uh, I record all three Man on the Moon tracks, like full, you know, video, multi-camera yeah. rig recording studio stuff then we do it again live for instagram and facebook so oh. i do all three again live uh don't screw up <laughs> then i do four video lessons for minel all speaking stuff then i do a walkthrough of my gear all on video then we do an hour-long podcast good lord this is all in one day um <laughs> And so, like, I'm fighting this cold. Like, yo, if you could just get me to a nice, solid, maybe Monday, I'll let you take over, cold. You can have whatever you want. You can take me oh, down, but man. let me just get to Monday. So I've got, and then on Saturday, I'm going over to the Nelson Drum Company. They just got a retail spot in Nashville. I saw that. Uh, so That's awesome. Congrats to Bryson. And uh, so I'm going to go shoot a bunch of vintage stuff. And uh, the best thing ever, Bryson is like. He's the sweetest hippie I've ever known. I love this kid. I mean, I taught. I started teaching when he was like twelve, and now he, he now he's a full out man with a business and everything. But he's like, uh, look, man, we're just starting out. I could tell. I didn't know where he's going, but I'm like, bro, you don't have to pay me. I just want to do this. And then, but the, but what's way better is something that for me, money can't buy. He's like, well, don't worry, I've restored a ton of Gretsch round batch drums and I'd love to give you at least a snare drum or anything that you want that's vintage and it's like that's one area that I'm really bad at is I can see this stuff on eBay and see it on Reverb but I don't know enough about the vintage gear to know okay is that worth that much or I I really don't have a Mm. An eye for that. So I'm like, bro, you give me a snare drum, I'll stay there for a week. We're good. Because <laughs> that's like something, I mean, it's weird that I'm, I've got all these Gretsch drums everywhere, and but I don't have any legitimate old school round badge drums. I yeah. just have like one yeah. 40s or 50s snare drum. Oh. Yeah, I mean, oh. it's hard to beat that. Yep. If you get if he has a wood drum, he's willing to part with. I mean, that's kind of the sound, <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. And so, I, yeah, that, it was like, no, you. That's that's worth so much more than money to me. I'll, I'll take that all day long. Yeah. Now, here's what I'm trying to figure out. Sixteen by one point five ANF. Did you hear it in my video? Yeah, I yeah. Made a video. Yep. Okay. Now. You know that you know my miking process. I have one mic mm-hmm. over over the drums, um, then one in front of the kick. I can't mess with the 
the sound of that. Otherwise, you would hear it in everything else I was playing. I was playing hi hats and rims because everybody's like, "What did you do to that snare?" And I'm like, yeah. "Oh, I can't do anything. <laughs> like, I you know, I didn't do anything to it." Um, but it's so perfect for one fill in the Man on the Moon stuff. And I'm like, "Do I put that in my suitcase?" <laughs> I'm not gonna like, can't, but just for one fill because I dude, that drum is so sick. It's a five hundred dollars. That's like nothing for that handmade drum. <sighs> Uh, so, anyways, uh, no, long story no. short, no, you don't think <laughs> no. so. You think I could just take like detune a snare for that one fill? Yeah, you can feel like a yeah, of course, throw some Tupperware on it, something. <laughs> Do whatever uh, you need but I want it so bad, it goes. <laughs> oh, it's just sassy. So, anyways, between that and then going full Frankenstein on one of my Gretsch snares yesterday. Um, and getting my chrome over brass to like this sweet spot that I'm actually going to travel with my chrome over brass. I'm going to use my uh, tackle drum bag and actually carry it on the plane with me. So. Oh, cool. So you're going to use yeah, that man. and then whatever they have down there you're going to use? Yeah, I'll, I'll, then I'll just detune something for the side snare. But I'm going to use the um, 14 by 5 chrome over brass with angel hoops with the 42 strand on the bottom. Sweet. And as you're... Uh, recommendation three years ago, single ply text. <laughs> it, bro, whatever you say, it just takes me like two, two to three years to catch up, and then I go, "Hey, Mike, check it out. If you put a single ply head on, oh, so snappy." And you're like, "Yeah, I think I emailed you about that in 1984." So, hey, man, whatever, man. Hey, whatever it takes. So, what's going on with you, buddy? Ah, uh, what is going on with me? I'm learning a bunch of stuff. It's been a couple of weeks of like fill-in gigs, so it's been it's been kind of crazy, like just cramming music in my ears i've got to learn a there's a i'm actually was unaware of him but apparently he's written a bunch of number one country hits phil vassar i'm going to be playing a show with him this weekend so i've got to learn a bunch Congrats, of his stuff man. yeah i don't i mean he's he's great now that i've checked him out he's great right but i was like you want to do this gig i'm like sure whatever and I'm like oh wait a minute this guy's got like number one hits <laughs> like, i should probably take this very seriously I should probably not wait until today to learn the songs right right <laughs> So it's been a lot of that. Thankfully, I'm pretty good at charting stuff out and not making it look like I'm reading the chart on stage. I'm pretty good at the sneaky, right. like, put the chart under the hi-hat or whatever. and out of boy. You know, it looks like I'm just, just looking go at the concentration monitor. concentration face. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm just checking out the monitor, but I'm looking at the mm-hmm. chart. <laughs> I'm going to need a little, uh, little uh, 240 hertz out of the, the side wedge here <laughs> while I find out if we're going back to the B section. Thank yeah. you. Awesome, man. Well, congrats. That, that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so. I'm kind of on the fence of what um, what snare drum to use because his stuff has a real cracky snare. But, oh, really? But okay. the other artist I'm playing with at that same show likes a real kind of dead snare. Like, do I take mm. two and change it or I just do one and, and just roll with it? So I'm not sure yet. To be determined. Mm. I'll probably take my uh, my Masters of Maple Black Beauty sort of Black Ugly. Yeah, man. So I think that'll do both. Yeah. Do you know uh, Chris Hancock from Rooster Thrones? Yeah, of course. He he just got his uh, full Masters of Maple kit. Oh, nice! Yeah. yeah, it's it's gorgeous. So check his stuff out on Instagram. If you guys haven't seen Rooster Thrones stuff, definitely check it out because uh, he's quite the artist when it comes to throne making. But uh, he's also an amazing drummer. He's been to camp probably four times now, and uh, a, a, amazing drummer. He's he's. Uh, I hope you get a chance to hear him really do his thing because I'm sure you get to see him do the Salt City drum demos. But when he does his own thing, he's he's quite creative. He's really good at like the trip hop thing and making mm. it sound cool, like the fake delay or the you know uh, what would you call that like live delay when you 
Yeah, live delay. He's really good at that stuff. So, but he just got his master's of maple kit. Uh, maple kit, and it's it's nice. awesome. So, Sweet. so next week we'll get to we'll get an update on what snare you chose. Yep, <laughs> and how LASIK went. You're getting LASIK eye surgery. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. I think last week I I kind of jumped the gun and said I would be done this week, but since we're recording a day earlier than normal, I'm actually having the surgery tomorrow. Fingers crossed, everything's cool because I've got a weekend of gigs that I can't miss. <laughs> so. Man. Well, I can tell you this: your outcome completely determines whether I get LASIK in the next six months. So, so I'm the canary um, in the coal mine. I get it. You are, man. You are. If you go blind in one eye, I'm like, I think I'm just going to wait for them to work out the technology kinks. Um, but if it goes well for you, like everyone that I've ever heard that has ever had the surgery is, you know, says it's like just life changing for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I've heard um, the same thing, and I don't think anyone is exaggerating when they say. I mean, right. I don't. I don't know what being able to see 2015 means like i have no idea i don't even think with my glasses i'm 2020 i think it's still kind of jacked up yeah no i'm with you man and i've just i've done the contacts thing forever and then i started doing the glasses just for traveling and for what i wear my contacts too long and it's it's time man uh so so you are you are my canary i wish you the best (laughs) and we'll go from there all right let's get into something that's totally not related to your snare drums or your eyes and that is jazz comping yeah and this is something that almost every drummer that came up in school music has at least gone through for sure um but i think that jazz comping is a pretty polarizing thing because if you look at how you did it and you look at how i did it and we probably went through the same books and did a lot Mm -hmm. of the same exercises we went through it in completely different ways and i know from talking to you in the past way different mindsets so Mm -hmm. for me jazz comping was independence drum homework right and it was not related to any genre of music it was like here's an ostinato with your right hand and let's see if you can play these improvisations with your left hand and your right foot um and that's how i went through it and it built up my drumming independence and i felt like i became a much better rock drummer funk drummer and fusion drummer because of my jazz comping work and then I remember one time uh, you said, hey, can you make some jazz comping lessons for Modern Drummer? I said, yeah. And I did it, and I sent it to you, and you're like, yeah, n- not like that. Um, <laughs> I didn't say and that. I was just, no, no, you were very polite, but I, I, was, I was treating it like independence. You know, My left right, hand yeah. was extremely loud because for me it was all about placement. It wasn't about um, tying it to the sound of a, mu- of a style of music. So let's, get, let's start with where did you start with this stuff? Was it a book? Was it a teacher? Um, yes, it was, it was being, you know, thrown into the middle school big band and having to figure out how to play jazz just by, here's the chart and it says swing. I don't know what that means. And then listening to the recordings, you know, I remember getting, there was like a a new version of the Glenn Miller band that put out an album in the early nineties and it was like recorded beautifully. So I got to hear like a. And they were playing the charts exactly as they were traditionally written, but I got to hear them recorded by a, a new band with like really clean recordings. So I kind of just caught that dude's approach, like everything that he did. I don't even know who the drummer was at the time. Right. So it was like minimal comping, but there was still comping. So I kind of sure. grabbed, you know, just like, all right, we're playing this tune, and during this section of the song, he's doing stuff with the left hand. All right, let me try some of that, whatever's happening. Right. Um, and then Books. at that time, since you were new to drumming, did, at least for me, this happened, but 
did your ride symbol fall apart when you tried to put in the left hand? Yeah, totally. I I defaulted. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, I defaulted to doing like rim clicks on two and four, or just on four. Sure, like on I just four. Yeah. I just knew that would work. That would get me through the chart, and it wasn't going to fall apart. And right. I still think that's a good device to go to if you're like unsure about what to do and you have to play a jazz tune. Just put the rim click on beat four and just just groove. It'll be cool. Absolutely, it'll be cool. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was. Probably in high school, I, I started really getting into the music and Peter Erskine's first video, uh, mm-hmm. Everything is Timekeeping. It came with a booklet that had just like kind of a, a quick synopsis of left hand comping. I practiced that like every day for a long time and right. then eventually got into syncopation and, and uh, Jim Chapin's book. Um, and you yeah, know, Chapin's on all that. book was pretty late for me, to be honest. Like I had always heard of it, but my comping started. Um, with um syncopation for sure and mm-hmm. then i think i went from that there was an in, there is an entire jazz comping section um it's very mathematical it's not musical well i wouldn't say it's not musical that's how you use it but it's very mathematical and very systematic but there's a whole uh, jazz comping section in joel rothman's basic drumming book oh right and i was teaching out of that so early that i i just was like oh i'll do these as independence exercises and then i think the first time that I got smacked in the face with what real comping is, at least out of a book, was definitely um, John Riley's The Art of Bop Drumming. And yeah, that's yeah. when – because in Rothman's book, most of it is single limb. Like, here's the comping for snare drum. Here's the comping for bass drum. Right. In syncopation, even though you can mix it up, it is written on one line. But all of a sudden, once you get to, like, uh, the third page of, of Riley's book, it's actually written out. No, you're doing this on the snare and this on the kick. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the first time I was like, oh, wow, I'm actually having a conversation with my left hand and my bass drum. And I think that um, that was definitely the game changer for me that took it from independence to music. And yeah. then I was like, oh, my gosh, this is big boy stuff. Yeah. The other thing is, like, when do you decide as a drummer that you're actually – or when do you realize that you're comping for comping's sake, but you're not being musical at all? It's just yeah, like, well, I, exactly. I worked out this independence, so it's going down in your piano solo, Joe. Yeah, I mean, that is – that was the next level question that I asked myself for years and years and years because because of going through the, the book method, there's no application in that. It's just here's the exercises, learn them. And then they just say, you know, go have at it. But it really you, is you an independence thing. Yeah, you can't give a you know a kid a dictionary and say, now go write a poem or go you know right. write a song. It's it's there was that step of like, what the hell do I do with this stuff? You know, yeah, and have it not. Sure. And it took a long time for me to kind of come up with my own concepts, which I'll, I'll go into in a minute. But I think the number one thing is to, as you're practicing the independence. Make sure you work in at least a portion of your practice that's improvisation based on that independence. So you're Agreed. learning the exercises. So say you're just doing quarter note patterns on the snare drum, and you get through all the variations, you practice them for a half hour, spend at least five minutes improvising four-bar phrases using that vocabulary that you just practiced. So then you get into the mindset of, you know, comping is supposed to be an improvised act. It's not play the eight bars that you learned on page nine or something. Uh, right. So I would, that would be like the first step to kind of get into what do I do with this stuff is make sure you're always adding the the creative improv part of it, um, and then playing along with classic records and 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 we we always talk about transcribing drum solos, but it's more valuable to transcribe the comping. Transcribe. And that's part of Riley's stuff too. When you're going through Art of Bop and Beyond Bop, you start seeing these transcriptions. You're like. 
as a young drummer, you think, but that's not the cool stuff. And <laughs> yeah. then as an older drummer, you're like, wait, that's the coolest of the cool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's different, um, different. you know, you can, go, you can go so deep with it. You could just transcribe the drum part, but I don't think that gives you enough information. I think you got to also look at what is the rhythm of the piano part, and then how's the drum comping fit in. And then if you can get your right. hands on a transcription of the actual solo of the horn solo, and then superimpose that over top of the comping. Where does it? Where is he interjecting? Where is he hitting certain accents? Right. Where is he filling in? And the that's gaps? really. I mean, we should definitely you know get into the mindset of comping. But first, for our listeners, for those of you that maybe kind of grew up in the rock or the funk thing and have not really worked on comping, let's talk about the word. So, do you see it as accompaniment or complement? What is comping short for for you in your mind? Um, or is it both? Yeah, I guess it's both. I've never, I mean, I've heard both of those those definitions, but I've never, I've just always thought of it as comping, like you're you're contributing to the to the flow of the solo and to right. the flow of the song in different ways. And there's different. You're not always accompanying. You're not always complimenting. Sometimes you're just playing a riff. Right. Sometimes you're interjecting. Sometimes you're trying to derail the guy to go somewhere else. So, it, I think of it more yeah. of it's a it's conversation. Its yeah, it's a conversation that has no predetermined end, start or end. That you're right. you're just adding your words, you're adding your statements. But would you say that? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but at least f- from my perspective, when I started actually really caring about this stuff, what I realized was that once I had the independence down, my next biggest attribute and key was my ear. The comping meant nothing if it wasn't yeah. in response to something. Like you said, it could even be response to silence. It's yep. Like okay, well everyone's laying out i'm gonna get a little busy here yeah. because i'm kind of by myself for four bars yeah totally it's um that become yeah it's this application what's what's the goal what are you trying to do um right yeah, my phone is ringing Sorry. do not disturb dawson <laughs> nobody calls me anymore except for during this time <laughs> i think i trained everyone that i don't answer the phone but there's still a few that they call <laughs> anyway so yeah i think uh, I kind of wanted to go through my concepts of comping as far as how to practice them in musical ways. So that might be yeah. a good way to kind of shift it. So, uh, like, I think there are essentially five approaches to jazz comping. Okay. And and these are no hard, fast rules, but it's just when I teach it and when I was practicing, I was trying to think of, like, well, how do I, how do I break down what Philly Joe does on this track and what tony does on this track what what is their concept what is their approach to the comping because um, it's very very rarely if not never just randomness they're just playing stuff because they want to keep their hands moving uh, so i think the first approach which is probably the easiest approach is to just think of your comping as you're just prodding the groove along you're not necessarily mm-hmm. thinking of the melody or the form you're just kind of prodding you're just kind of adding little accents here and there to keep the groove bouncing um, you could be playing a repetitive four bar riff or something but in general you're just playing a rhythm that's just not just stagnant a lot of times that's right. like playing on the off beats the left hand is just hitting the off beats of two or four or whatever every once in a while sure and just keeping that forward momentum going yeah exactly so you're just keeping it grooving and slightly evolving you know more and more as the soloist elevates their dynamic but you're not necessarily thinking too structurally it's just play the groove and and add some interjections Uh, okay that would be like the first kind of like beginning stage and then i think of the second one is when you 
when you learn the melody of the tune, which you should, but you know, if you go to a jam session and you don't know the tune, you can just play the groove and prod along and you'll be fine. But if someone says, let's play now's the time, you should know the melody, and then you can structure your comping based around nothing but the melody. Regardless of what the soloist is playing or what the totally. other people are playing, you can just hit the key accents and the key, the key shapes of the melody, yeah. and you'll sound legit, and you won't get lost, and no one will look at you like, like stop playing all that nonsense. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Agreed. You're just, I think that's a, a really big thing is learning how to sing the head of a tune or the melody um, in your head while playing and then having your drumming be built around that. Yeah, exactly. And, and most of the time the soloist is also going to be playing off the melody, so you're going to end up hitting accents at the same time. It's going to sound like you're actually conversing, even though you're both just kind of using the melody as your, your jumping right. point. And then I think of the, yeah. the third approach when you kind of think more of form of the entire tune you think like eight bar phrases so you're going to shape what you play to kind of tension 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 release at the end of the eight bars and then you do it again and then you do it again and then you do it again mm. you think of i think jeff Teen watts is a good example of that when you hear him comping he's essentially just getting more intense and building the density and then releasing at the end of the eight bar phrase or the 16 bar phrase or something like that mm-hmm. He he could probably you could probably mute the soloist and it would still sound exciting just to hear him do that. Uh, sure, absolutely, yeah. And I also think of uh, early Tony Williams. If you listen to the track Seven Steps to Heaven," he's very clearly playing eight bar phrases. He just starts simply and gets busier and busier, and it almost always hits with an accent on the end of four and the end of the eighth bar, and it just keeps repeating that thing over and over again. So that's accenting the form. You're kind of shaping the eight-bar phrases, and, and yeah. so you're not necessarily playing the melody or anything like that. And then the fourth approach, which I think is kind of a more contemporary style, would be to fill in the gaps of what the soloist is playing. I think of Brian mm. Blade and Bill Stewart yeah. and guys like that, where you really listen intently to what the soloist is doing, and you don't really play until they take a breath. Like you're just adding periods and commas and question marks to their to their phrases. Um, you kind of stand out of the way for the most part, but just filling in those gaps. Because a good solace yeah. is going to leave some air for you to, to make your statement as well. Yeah, and especially as long as you're listening, you'll you'll be ready for that moment. Yeah, you know? and what's cool about that for me is it's not always at obvious spots in the form. It's not like at the end of every every eight bars they take a breath. Right. Sometimes they go six right. and a half bars and you hear like a gap and you're like, oh, let me throw something in there. Right. So you can kind of break away from the obvious structure of the tune that way. Um, and then the last way for the fifth way is when you just combine all that stuff together. Sometimes you play a riff, sometimes you play the melody, sometimes you're really interacting with the soloists. You know, it's kind of that's what I think where we all want to be is to be able to kind right. of you know what are we going to do for this soloist? Some some soloists I've played with they'll actually tell me just chill on this one, just groove. <laughs> like all right, cool. So I'm not going to be jumping all over them. I'm going to just play some some riffs, right. maybe land on the rim, click on four, something like that. And then there's other yeah, guys well, that are like, a, you know, oh, they, they're like, I want you to really interact. And then you got to be like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean I just start playing nonsense? No, you <laughs> got to be listening and find your spots. And yeah, that's <laughs> key. Well, I think the other thing, too, is especially if you have never had a jazz gig in your life, which is pretty common for a lot of drummers, yeah. you might not know that those solos that we're talking about, they happen in every song. Yeah, and there's it's usually like, multiple. Yeah, three or four. Yeah, so, and I mean, the last legitimate over 30 second rock solo that you or someone's <laughs> had in the band besides the guitar player is like never yeah it's so like eight bars yeah 
Yeah, so it's like it's something where you do have a chance to say, okay, in this song, I'm going to just support, and in this song, I'm going to really interact. Because if if you're playing, you know, a 15 song double set, I mean, you're going to have chances to to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. But I think the the I guess the eventual goal is is your step five, which is to have all of those combined and not be making a predetermined plan to you know for this next four minutes I'm going to stay out of the way and only be periods and commas and question marks. Yeah, um, you yeah. know you should kind of almost intuitively know which time to be which you know role and and uh, and what to do and it, and it's one of those things where guys and girls like you do have to get out there and gig this stuff and luckily even though it's super intimidating jazz jams are way cooler than you think about being acceptable as long as you're not up there trying to beast the kit you know yeah um everyone up there is nervous too it's not like only the drummer's nervous if (laughs) if some guy brings his horn down he's freaking out you know (laughs) so so as long as you're supporting the music and realizing that okay as long as i can get us through with quarter notes and rim click on four at least the song won't fall apart yeah and then anything you can do after that to make it musical and to support it more is going to be great you know but you do have to i I don't think that the book thing or even just listening is enough with this you really have to interact with human beings for this to start to take shape in your own playing yeah totally i mean because you got to figure there's usually a guitarist or a pianist Mm -hmm. on stage and they're doing the same stuff so you have to also sorry what's he going to do where you know how much is he playing and what should i do because if you're just both playing a ton of eighth notes and it's just like what what the hell's going on we're just talking over top of each other it doesn't make any sense yeah it's same thing in in rock funk and fusion you know when i when my students uh, come here for a camp and I'll, I'll do like a thing where i have them play a drumless track if there's a really busy bass guitar part a lot of times they'll try to do the whole thing with their foot and i'm like uh yeah. he's got that frequency covered <laughs> yeah. just bookend the damn thing. it's so busy like <laughs> when i hear one whole note on bass that's when i might put in a little more bass drum to to bring it up so you, i think it really all of this stuff comes down to using your ear and listening and then but the other thing the other aspect to that is the mechanical practice that happens in the shed where you're actually building up your facility to the point that you can be musical it's very hard to be musical and to and to flow when you don't have the independence to do so yeah that's true and i I think that's that's why most of us kind of get stuck in that like we got all this independence we worked out all these triplets and all these 16ths against the ride symbol but then it's like okay now what do I do with that? And right. you know, I I know I was guilty of it not working on the application side of it nearly enough. And that's that's why right. I say spend some part of your practice improvising with the material that you're practicing, even Agreed. if it's just quarter notes or if it's eighth notes or if you're getting into the more complex stuff. Uh, Stage two creative, you know, like once you've worked out the physicality and the math, it's like, okay, well, can you do anything? Can you be musical with this stuff? Yeah, right. Um, And I mean, you can, I think you could play an entire gig with just quarter notes and eighth notes as you're comping. I think of, I mean, if you really look at the, the pillars of jazz drumming, there weren't a ton of like insanely independent drummers they were you know Art Blakey's a good case. I mean he was a pianist and I believe as Billy Eckstein just said go play drums and he became a drummer you know it wasn't like he went to music school and took lessons his whole life he just figured it out and his vocabulary right. as hip as it is it's not super sophisticated I mean, it's eighth right, notes right. quarter notes some triplets some sixteenth notes right you know and it's not a ton of stuff but he makes right. a lot with it so I think I think not falling into the trap of I've got to be able to play like Tony Williams before I can even 
consider playing jazz. Is, no, I mean that's <clears throat> that's you know kind of blue, right? You get yeah, there and exactly. you go like, oh wait, I could do that. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but would you do that? That's the question. <laughs> right? Yes, you could. Most you know. Most beginning drummers could do that, but would you? And do you have the musicality to stay there? Yeah. Well, guys, definitely, if, if you want to, like I said, as a rock drummer or whatever I am now, uh, a lot of my independence came from working on jazz comping. And so, uh, you know, like we said, if, if you have a private drum instructor, syncopation is a great way to go. If you need it kind of all written out for you, then definitely check out The Art of Bop Drumming and uh, Advanced Techniques for the Modern Drummer by Jim Chapin. There's other great ones out there as well. So, yep. All right, now let's talk about... Uh, somebody who's not conventional whatsoever <laughs> and you know when i think about um how do you say is it gavin wallace aylesworth yep i think so let's go with all it all right not bad <laughs> i'm gonna go with uh, g dub <laughs> when i think about the band bent knee or bent yeah um this is like to me the true definition of alternative music because even though in the like late nineties alternative ended up having a sound, yeah. I always saw alternative as something that I couldn't describe. Yeah. Yeah. And this and Bentney is that. I mean, they are a fantastic band, but I hear hints of like that whole Mumford and Sons thing mm-hmm. that kind of took over for a while. But I hear hints of like like nineties alternative and I hear hints of like trip hop. I mean there's yeah. just a little bit of yeah, there's like odd times yeah. and stuff. And Gavin's drumming is so uh, just to go back to the comping thing, so complimentary. It's not yeah. beats and fills. And it's very almost like I wonder if he grew up in school music because it's very symphonic the way he crafts his drum parts for this stuff. I'm pretty sure. Well, he's in he's in the October issue. There's a, you know, a small feature with him. But I believe they had the band all met at Berkeley, so they were in music there school. There we go. Yeah. But what yeah. I like about this band, because I wasn't really familiar with this band until we decided to do a story on him, I expected it to be you know music school music like right. real technical and and complex what i like about it is that it's it's very listenable music while they weave in some stuff really unexpected kind of sounds and yeah and odd times and the grooves and his playing to me kind of reflects that where it's like it's almost like a phil collins approach like he's playing progressive music but everyone can dig it it's not like whoa he's so good or it doesn't go over no, people's totally. heads that's i mean that's what i always love my favorite kind of music would be, you know, Genesis or Sting, where the wife, we can listen to it in the car, she digs it, but I get to enjoy it on a different, deeper right. musical level. Right. But it does have some surface hooks. Um, the band is just fantastic. You also get unique instrumentation from the band, you know, and in a way where you kind of wonder, as they're blending violin and guitar with 9,000 effects, you're kind of wondering, yeah. I don't know who's doing what. <laughs> I see them both on the screen, but I don't know who's responsible for what sound that I'm hearing, but it's an amazing sound. But it's not that thing where the band goes, okay, we're going to get a violin in the band just to put it in your face that we have a violinist in the band. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's like, hey, if, you, if you're, if you're going to bring in, you know, jazz flute, don't make it Jethro Tull. Like, yeah. I want to kind of just wonder, is that a flute? You know, um, and I remember when I first started uh, listening to the cinematic orchestra, I was going like, what? Wait, is that an oboe? Is that a clarinet? What's playing that part? And right. I felt the same way with this band with Bent Knee. I'm sitting there going like, you know, because I did a little bit of both. I watched, obviously, a bunch of their YouTube videos just to see Gavin play. But I also just listened to their albums. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I was like, I don't know what that is. And I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know? That's exactly. awesome. 
Yeah, it sounds like they're they're kind of that perfect mix of of everything. Like you said, it's truly alternative music, and it it's it's not rock, it's not pop, it's not it's not indie because they're on a major label. <laughs> you know, it's like right. how do you define this stuff? And I no, I, I gravitate towards mm-hmm. that. And I feel it's like kind of like with modern jazz, which is an umbrella term for music that we can't call jazz anymore. It's not right. fusion, and it's not jazz. What is it? It's like right. just creative music. Yeah, and they're kind of going that way, but with more of a you know, an alternative rock aesthetic, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it in the bag with, with alternative rock. I mean, they did shows with Dillinger Escape Plan, I believe, which I found really fascinating because it's another be, band that's like, Dillinger is their extreme version of something that's not metal, it's not rock, it's it's something. Right. <laughs> and then these but guys see, are an extreme version of something, the opposite side of the spectrum. I think when putting together great shows, and that's such a good example... I think one thing that gets left out sometimes is thinking what, how much trust do you have in your audience and what can the audience handle? And if you think about Dillinger fans, even though Dillinger's more pushed towards the heavier side, more pushed towards the metal side, if if their fans are into Dillinger, they're going to be open-minded to just creative music right. in general. Yeah. I don't need to see Dillinger twice. One is one per night is enough. I don't want to see Dillinger <laughs> yeah. and Dillinger Jr. Right. <laughs> I want to see them be the best in the world at what they do. So to see Bent Knee with Dillinger would be perfect. I could also see Bent Knee playing with Cigaros or yeah, with yeah, Radiohead exactly. or with anybody. I mean, they you know they could just. Uh, it's a pretty cool band, and I know that Mike and I are being extremely vague right now, but that's actually <laughs> why you need to go listen to Bent Knee is because it's really hard to just nail this thing down. Yeah. But as far as now, did you know about Gavin in any way other than just not this? at all? I had no idea what yeah. to expect. I expected more of like a prog rock kind of a band just right more of a you know a you know a heavily rush or or yes influenced kind of a or, mm-hmm. or uh king crimson inspired band but while i think some of that stuff might be in there it's it's definitely doesn't lean that way to me it sounds agreed it's way more song and or organic sounding it's it's cool it, again you said it's hard to describe and that's why i dig it uh, yeah no i think uh everybody should definitely check it out now do you know what kind of is i thought i saw him playing a cannabis a Canopus. Canopus. Hello. He's got a, a Canopus snare drum, but I don't know who he plays for. Uh, what's listed in the article is a D'Amico kit in the studio. Oh, nice. Okay. But then live, I think he's just using whatever backline he can get his hands on. He's got Zildjian and Peisty cymbals and Remo heads. and Nice. Yeah, so he's, he's not like a, kind of appropriately, he's not all endorsed to the gills. He's just kind of playing, right. playing drums, playing music, whatever. Playing dr- I, yeah, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> Well, guys, definitely check out Gavin on the new album. It's called Land Animal. Uh, it came out this year. That's by Bent Knee, and and it is fantastic. Um, what was it? Uh, wasn't Holy Ghost? Uh, maybe These Hands. There were a few songs where I was like, man, I don't even. Uh, there was there was this thing he was playing where he's like playing kind of a slower groove, and then like the most random subdivision ever for like a split second, like doom doom. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm so lost, man. And that's like, I just love that kind of stuff. And the band was playing it with him. So they clearly had defined what it was going to be. Uh, it wasn't random at all. Um, so this dude's seriously creative. Uh, so definitely check it out. Like I said, you can check out Land Animal. That's their newest album, Gavin Wallace Aylesworth. And uh, the band is called Bent Knee. Dig it. All right, it's time to thank our sponsor, Dream. So, so, um, I guess on the same kind of like creative, what is this tip? I wanted to drop in. Uh, we forget that Dream also makes gongs, a ton of like 
really cool gongs and little gongs, big gongs and stuff. So they posted a clip on their Facebook page of the Torque Percussion Quartet just improvising on nothing but gongs. So I'm going to drop it. It's like a 50-second clip. So we're going to drop in the audio. You can kind of hear, you know, this stuff is cool too. You might want to get a few of these things in addition to some cymbals. So here's Dream Gongs in action. that's one of my nightmares or one of my dreams <laughs> like it's, it's like there's like a moment where i'm happy and i'm like oh this is so fun and then i'm like yeah this is uh yeah. there's two twins standing next to each other in a hallway with little dresses on i don't know uh that is cool stuff i had no now do you know is it similar to the symbol thing where the gongs are also pretty affordable yeah for what they are? totally i mean some of the stuff they're playing are like little four inch gongs you can get those for definitely under 50 bucks i mean it's wow really cheap really cheap and, and musical stuff so you're seeing more guys you know like mark and carter mclean they're they're messing around with gongs putting them on their drums and doing all kinds of things yeah. with it so it wouldn't hurt just to buy a few and just see what you can do with it i think they were using in that clip uh, there's probably 25 different gongs that they're yeah. hitting with mallets and stuff it's pretty neat cool man so thanks Very dream cool. for sponsoring the episode and now we get into something that i don't have audio for unfortunately you have no audio of the outlaw drums no i don't i didn't review these actual drums but i definitely well, want to talk I have about a them. a story for you about outlaw okay so um i had a student here uh i believe it was kathy cast it was during one of my ladies camps and i i can't remember the actual complete details but there was something where um her father who had passed away she got some wood either from a chest of his or maybe from his old house. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was some old, old, old reclaimed wood. Mm. And she sent it to the people at Outlaw Drums, and they made her a snare drum out of her father's reclaimed wood. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And and then I th- I'm pretty sure they actually attached his like um, war medals to the drum. There was like his either his purple heart or his medal of honor attached to the drum as well. Yeah. Almost like the badge of the drum. I mean, it was like, it was customization. This is four or five years ago. Yeah. This was customization that I'd never seen before. Um, and I just thought like, wow. And then I, uh, getting ready for today's episode, I was doing my research and just to see how much stuff they're doing with reclaimed wood. Yeah. Um, is really, really quite cool yeah um, yeah i first saw them at a chicago drum show a few years back and they just had these these really crazy looking drums and i couldn't tell if they were just like ornamental drums or if they were actually playable like they had nails in them and they looked really right rough. yeah uh, so i actually went over and hung out with them a bunch and ended up buying a couple because i just i just wanted Did to own really? them yeah because i wanted to own them i mean and the the cool thing is their stuff is not super expensive because a lot of it is made from pine and woods that aren't like super pricey uh, the one that I got is made from an old tobacco shack that he turned into really? a couple different drums. It's got a couple rusty nails in it. Uh, so, but 
it's just cool to have it because you're like, man, this drum is just it's like a piece of American it's history. history. Like, I, it feels I like totally I agree. I can see the tobacco shack when I look at this drum, and it's like from the 1800s or something. Uh, the ones that we reviewed are actually from, gosh, what is the Civil War era? But man, but the trees that this. So what it is is it's a it's a house from a Civil War veteran, but the wood that was used in that house dates back to the 1600s. Holy mackerel. Yeah. And so they made some drums out of that, but tried to maintain the the look and the, the vibe of the original house. Uh, it's pretty magical. You think, like I originally thought, you know, he's just taking the wood raw and just forming it into a drum, but they actually have to like redo the finish. It's completely redone to make it look like the original. Yeah, it's it's the woodworking is just incredible. I'm looking at the, uh, the shotgun shell snare yeah. drum, which is... Old school drum, but all the vents are made out of 12-gauge shotgun shells. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, even though like I'm like Mr. Hippie anti-gun, anti-pepper you know, spray, anti-slapping a human, um, it's still... Dude, it's, it looks so good. Um, how do your drums sound? I mean, this is yeah. old old wood well the one you know? both of them that i have are pine and so pine is, okay. is a pretty bright sounding wood mm. um so they're they're definitely bright lively drums i got a 13 and a like a, a four and a half by 14 i believe they're bright they're bright so i end up using like a power stroke three head on it to kind of just tame it down a little bit okay but they're really they're really responsive and sensitive um at the time the edges i what i liked about them also was that it was kind of like all the rules of drum making were kind of thrown out the window a little bit like the edges weren't perfect they were still kind of rough and and you know wow. kind of like old looking and i thought that was just awesome i haven't had any issue with tuning them uh, i think they might have changed the way they do bearing edges on the newer stuff but okay for me it just looked like it looked like an old piece of a building that i just had to own it and the ones that we reviewed he actually embedded civil war era bullets into the shell which is just super cool and his name is yeah. actually Michael Outlaw, so it's not uh, the name of the company is not based on like him being an anti-establishment person or something like that. <laughs> running from the law, making <laughs> snare drums on the side. I remember. I mean, the nail thing was the first thing that I remember going like, "Wait a minute, yeah, How, those it's it's got metal in." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this stuff is custom on like the fullest level of custom. The other thing that I really love about it is. And I don't know if your pine drum has this, but I'm sure it does. Is he doesn't sand the outside down to have that smooth finish that we're used to on drums? Yeah, like no, there's so much texture yeah. on the outside of these drums. Totally. Yeah, it feels it again. It feels like he just took the wood and just made a drum out of it. But he actually had to kind of like redo the grooves and redo the paint and stuff to make it wow. feel original, even though it's been it's been planed into a drum. Uh, Unreal, man. Yeah, he's Unreal. done some cool stuff. I saw one that was a used like bleachers from an old high school gymnasium or something, and left like some kids I think had scratched their initials in it, and he left that in the wood. Just That's you know, so cool, cool little things. I love, and I mean, I don't know if this is still the case because, like I said, when Kathy got her drum, it was quite a while ago. But I also love the fact that you could have something in your family that's wood that really means the world to you and that he could possibly make you a drum out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, would say, I don't know that that's still the case, but I know that that did happen. So 
I would think so. I would think so. I think that's that was the whole point of the company. I believe was to kind of you know, retain some history via drum making. So these these pieces of sure. you know because the, these tobacco shacks were just falling down. They got tore down. There's all this old wood that's hundreds of years old, and it's just going to be thrown into a landfill. And he's like, Nah, let me uh, let me preserve that and make a drum out of it. Well, guys, if you want to check it out, uh, you can go to outlawdrums.com and uh, just click in the um, about section. Click on sound files, and there's probably a good 20 videos of of different snares that he's got heart pine 14 by 8 yellow pine 4 by 7 there everything is there um so you can check it out there and give it a listen really really cool stuff and i just i noticed on their homepage that eddie from from one republic is playing their drums oh yeah yeah he's got one that's crazy yeah i Todd, thought he was a he, he was a mapex guy wasn't he i don't remember i don't remember what i don't either I, I, but, but i mean that's a that's a fairly decent sized uh, artist. <laughs> I think he. Sign. I think he's a Gretsch artist. I believe. Okay, so is he maybe just playing their snares? Yeah, maybe. I mean, Todd Zuckerman has cool. one. He used one. If you follow his feed, where he kind of takes you into his recording studio, I remember he used it on a track a couple months back. And so yeah, nice. there's a lot of guys using them. Cool. Well, look like I just found my next snare drum. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're weird. I can't. I couldn't hear you. Skype broke up. <laughs> Somehow I just got a text from my wife. Uh, yeah, says, they're no, good. You, they're good people. So I would. I would just everyone. You know, check them out. Follow them online. I know they had. Uh, I believe actually he had like a fire that kind of screwed him up for a little bit recently. So give him some some good well wishes and <coughs> check out their drums. They're very cool. Sounds great. All right, let's get into Q and A. Q and A. First one is coming from Kyle. Um, Actually, this is relating to our, our jazz discussion. I've always been a rock pop drummer um, that can get by on some slower to mid-tempo jazz, but when anything that requires a really fast ride pattern, uh, my hand and wrist tenses up. I've tried using the finger technique and bouncing the stick off the ride to get a faster spang-a-lang, but I always tense up and cannot keep the, tempo, the fast tempo accurate. What techniques can I study to increase my speed and to stay relaxed? I think it's all mental, right? That would be a hundred percent mental problem. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think um, if you if you think that you're just going to show up on a jazz gig and, and try out a new technique and hope it works, it's it's not going to go well. I mean, to build up my my jazz ride speed, I spent a lot of time building up my hand speed. Um, yeah, you know, even even flam taps. Flam taps are great, awesome, awesome, awesome for building up your ride cymbal super up-tempo technique because if I'm playing flam taps and I get rid of my left hand, that's what my right hand was doing the whole time. Mm. So if I'm going, then both hands are getting that ticketing, 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 ticketing. Um, so things like flam taps help. It's groups of threes, even though we hear it in groups of two. Uh, it's, it's sitting there and really putting in... I remember my first jazz teacher told me like you know i need you to play quarter notes on the ride for an hour and then you know it was like this tempo for an hour the other thing too is um you know kyle try mapping out where you are if you're at say jazz ride pattern at i don't know 180 well try to get to 185 like don't just leapfrog into 300 320 (laughs) yeah um it's like you got to build it up just like you would if you were learning double bass all over again or a double stroke roll all over again so but i i I agree with mike it is a lot of mental it's about relaxing it's also taking some pressure off yourself there's nothing wrong with quarter notes yeah yeah exactly i think it's more of a macho thing that we have to swing through the entire caravan (laughs) you know (laughs) 
Yeah, Caravan. That's the track too. That was that was like my uh, <laughs> that was my unicorn. I was always chasing that track. But I think it's right, yeah, yeah. it's kind of like um, or I I meant Cherokee, not Caravan. Yeah, that's Caravan's what. I, yeah, slow. exactly. That's yeah. Cherokee. We both we, <laughs> we both both knew. Yeah. <laughs> but I think if it playing fast jazz is kind of like if you're going to drive an indie car for the first time. It's going to take right. you a few thousand miles to get used to how fast that thing is moving. So yeah. mentally, you have to relax, think slower, think whole notes, think That's two Billy bar Ward, phrases. right? Yeah, big I mean, time. It's just a perception of like, oh my god, there's so many notes going by, and then mentally you just collapse on yourself. Just like if you're driving yeah. 200 miles an hour, you're going to see stuff winging by so fast. You're like, what's going to happen? Agreed. But then eventually, yeah. it kind of everything slows down and it becomes normal, normalizes. Yeah, if you can, you know, Kyle, I mean, this is straight out of the Billy Ward DVD big time, but if you can s- slowly go from quarter notes while if you're going ding, jigging, ding, jigging, and you're going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and then you can cut that into one, two, three, four, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, jigging, ding, into one, two, three, yeah, exactly, four, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, two, jigging, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, ding, jigging, three, then you're going to be in a much more relaxed state, even though you're physically still playing just as fast as you wanted to. So, hope that helps, buddy. All right, our next one is coming from, let's see, I want to go with, we got two from Josh, so we can probably hammer both of these out. Uh, he says, I love when you guys discussed using a metronome on the offbeat and was wondering if uh, you guys have ever used the metronome on the offbeats when recording drums. Uh, is that something you're comfortable with now to where you can use it when you're working rather than just as a practice tool? Uh, That's a great question. Yeah, I've not ever done that, but I've done a lot of recording where there's no click. I'm just playing off of loops and stuff. And I think that type of practice is what allowed me to not freak out and have to have a click track on right. everything. I can hear yeah, a loop agreed. and I can kind of latch onto a loop that maybe's emphasizing the offbeat more. And I'm not feeling like, where's the downbeat? Where's the downbeat? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely I've never recorded to like the the Pro Tools beep on the upbeats, but I've definitely recorded to maybe a shaker, like you said, that yeah, is eights and it emphasizes the upbeats. You know, yeah. shaka, 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 shaka. Um, especially if the song itself has that reggae vibe where everything is lifting on the ups, then I want that feel in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I but I've never been like, hey producer, Put check this out. The offbeat, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm about to flip it on you. Um, so I have, I have not done that. <laughs> all right. The next one he has is, say, he's talking about of all the product reviews reviews you guys have done, the Bucks County kit really stood out for me, which was mm. a 13, 16, 24. So I was wondering if you guys could talk about drum sizes for recording. Um, I've read that certain producers and drummers have stayed away from 18-inch floor toms because they get too muddy and don't, don't cut through the mix. Uh, do you think a 24-inch kick would also not get much use in the studio. Um, he says, as a drummer who makes mainly makes a living as a producer, would I be better off getting a 20-inch kick? Uh, I have two kits right now, and they both have 22s. He's looking to sell one and diversify his setup. Great questions. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think that... I, I don't think that a 24 can't be used in the studio, but I do think it's less versatile than the 20. Um, yeah, I think, I think you could with, probably uh, get your 22 to do what... To sound like the 24. Yeah, with a right. little bit more open sound, and, and but you can't get a 24 to sound like a 20. That You'll never right. get that tight, punchy focus we just sound. We just had this problem um, with... So I'm headed to Nashville tomorrow, and there was a double booking of the uh, rental company that I'm getting my kit from. Mm-hmm. And I got an email yesterday saying, like, hey, sorry, 
little bit of a mix-up somewhere along the lines. I mean, because you've got Meinl dealing with it. Gretsch is dealing with it. There's a rental company in Nashville. And for those of you that think, like, how would they have a double booking for rental drums? It's like in Nashville, someone's renting those drums every day. Right. Yeah. So it's pretty common. So anyways, so they said, the 20 is out. Can you use a 22? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I hate to sound like a diva, but no. Um, that yeah. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm recording for a specific sound and a 20 is the sound I'm going for. So I think that, I think the 22 is going to go as big as you need a bass drum to go in the studio, but a 20 is its own animal. And, um, and I think you'll get more use out of that. Yeah, I agree. I think it also just depends on what styles of music you're playing more of. Course. Like if you're, yeah. if you're playing Kenny Arnoff style straight down the middle rock, he uses a 24 on almost everything. Rich Redman uses a 24 on almost everything. And they're not using the 20 that much because they're not doing more kind of tight pop fusion type sounds. So right. I think it just depends on what you need. But I, I agree that a 20 is probably going to give you more flexibility for the smaller, higher sounds. You can't get a yeah, 22 you, to do that stuff. If you went single ply coated on both sides of a 22 with very little muffling, you're going to get an amazing big 24 sound close right. to it. Yeah. You know? So. I yep. think I think you'd be set. There the you go. other the other question about floor toms, yeah, eighteens don't seem to record too well in my experience. Uh, and I've actually had you know top producers that I've sat in on sessions say they tend to go with a fourteen inch floor tom most of the yep. time, especially if you're you doing a, a lot of. Sounds super low. If you're playing a lot of like you're playing time on it a lot, the fourteen is mm-hmm. going to translate much better than even a sixteen. So there you go. Yeah, eighteens I can't get them to work. I think you just need like a huge room with in order to get those yeah. to work right. Um, okay, so one more. We've got Eric. This one comes from Eric. Um, this is about using your iPhone to record yourself. So I've heard that a great way to improve my playing is by recording myself playing and practicing. Um, I'll be using an iPhone 6S, 6S. Can you comment on the benefits of this as well as answer the questions, which stand or tripod should I use? Where do I set it up? And how much do you record from a distance, and how much is up close? Um, Great question. Yeah. And then the other part of his question is, what does the term butter mean? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Butter. That's your word, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think buttery is definitely a symbol adjective uh, at times. I don't really hear it used on drums that much, but... You know, a buttery ride, buttery crash. It's just that it has a lot of gushiness to it. And when you hit it, saturated fats drip out of the sides of it. That's, <laughs> it's just, um, I don't think of a, uh, let me make sure I don't use uh, Sabian, Zildjian, or Pisces. I don't think of a, um, I don't know, extra thick, minor classics customs dark as buttery. It's yeah. like ting. Yeah. Um, buttery is whoosh. Um, and now as far as your iPhone, so there's a couple things you need to take into consideration. Generally, when you are using a microphone, the closer you get to the drum set, the tighter the drums are going to sound. And the further you get away from the drum set, the bigger your drums are going to sound. So that's all determined by your room. If you have a really, really dead room, you might want to get the microphone a little further away to get this, the room to sound as big as possible. If you have a really echoey room, you might want to get the microphone really close. The problem with the iPhone, especially the iPhone 6, is that you're dealing with not a professional microphone that will compress, but at some point it actually clips. So if you yeah. get it too close, it's going to start clipping on you. It's not going to keep compressing and getting more of that bottom sound. So this is going to be a total... Um, 
you know, trial and error thing. You're just going to have to record yourself at different distances and find out where it sounds the best. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Uh, this was something that I was completely disappointed in when I first got my iPhone. It was like, I, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't record my drums using that built-in mic because it it just made me sound worse than i know i actually sounded like there's there's no low end (laughs) i refuse to believe that no (laughs) i I agree the low end is gone the cymbals sound really terrible no matter what you're using and in order to get the camera close enough to actually see anything it's just going to blow out the mic so i went right it's a fantastic camera yeah yeah. not a microphone so that's why i got the shore mvi interface so i can actually run mics through a mixer and then run the mixer into that i can put the camera wherever the heck i want in the room i don't have to worry about it the sound of it uh so yeah i think it's probably maybe if you're doing practice pad stuff and you want to just check your technique and stuff do that put it wherever you need to put it to see what you're doing but your drum kit's just not going to sound good and you're going to i think you're going to end up being frustrated that you sound worse than you actually do agreed Uh, yeah and and or you can also so you can do what was the sure one again mvi and there's also the roland go mixer which is uh maybe a step up from the mvi it has multiple inputs both of those are awesome both yeah. of those are awesome and if you just want to avoid that altogether you can go with the audio technica 2020 usbi and that is a microphone that'll go straight into your iphone oh right right and and actually then you just go into GarageBand and you're you're done um, um and it'll kind of take over the the sound of your microphone so all three of those options are great and i would suggest that over using the mic that's built in there you go. So send your questions in to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. And we're at coming to the end here. Picks of the week. What do you got? You want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll go. Um, right. My pick of the week is not actually a pick as more as uh, much as it is a mindset. So yesterday I just spent my day thinking like, okay, what do I want out of my dream snare? And I just went full Frankenstein. I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. I took a shell that I knew should be more responsive than I was getting out of it, which is Mm. my 14 by five chrome over brass, but it was a 14 by five chrome over brass with 20, um, strand snare wires. It had die cast hoops on it Mm -hmm. and it had a two ply head. Yep. So I just, I stripped it down, uh, all the way. And I even questioned like the throw off everything. And then I just looked around and I said, okay, I've got these angel hoops, um, it won't be quite as spraying and wide open as just the old school single flanged suicide hoops, but it's going to really open this drum up and I'm going to put a single, uh, ply head on it. So I did all that and I was like, it's still not as snappy as I want. Oh, I've got a bunch of 42 strand snare wires around. I threw that on. And honestly, like I made my dream snare for right now. This mm. thing just sounds amazing. It looks beautiful. Uh, doesn't cause any problems with my endorsement and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, it was just one of those things where I'm just happy that I took some time to do that. And I really just said, okay, even though I've been playing drums my whole life and I'm kind of stuck in my ways, let me break the mold and just tinker. Let me try stuff out. You're not going to break anything. You know, if it doesn't work, you go back to scratch and do it all over again. But, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm really happy that I spent some time looking around and, you know, if you got to go to the drum shop and tell them what you're looking for and trade out these wires. And then, I mean, I, I like getting nerdy about it. Like, you know, um, I liked. Th- I threw on nylon um, washers on all the tension rods because I like a smooth tuning. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like metal on metal. I like when you just touch the drum key and it tunes and it's yeah, buttery. yeah, buttery. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so I just had a, a blast creating a, a dream snare drum out of stuff I already had around here. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think we could probably both agree at this point that 
what push comes to shove, a brass snare is going to be the one. <laughs> I do agree. You know? I agree. I mean, it's like we can say, yeah, but a birch will do this and a and bronze will do that. But a good brass drum, I mean, that's kind of the sound. And it, I remember uh, you know, I've been obsessing over that Keith Carlock shuffle video that, that yeah. we talked about last week. And then I finally looked at what his gear was. He's playing a steel snare drum. I mean, it's like a cheap Gretsch steel snare drum. Right. And it's quite possibly my favorite snare drum I've ever heard in my life. So, it, I mean, I think it, as long as yeah. we, I mean, he just has a, obviously has a sound in his head that he's able to produce with tuning and his touch. And I think his touch. That you can give him anything, it's going to sound like that. I will, I will say this, uh, you know, I, this last two years, up until then, I've been more of a snare hoarder than I have a snare enthusiast as far as tone. This last two years, I've been very obsessed on like, trying to achieve something out mm-hmm. of a specific shell and I couldn't get it or I could brass so far for me seems to have the the widest tuning range I can get it thuddy if I want it doesn't die on me but I it goes higher than my wood snares my mm-hmm. wood snares kind of choke out at some point yeah and the brass like I'm able to really crank it up and it's still snapping still sounds like a usable snare drum yeah yes. I also like the overtones I tend to not gaff tape it or moon gel it up because i actually like the overtones yeah yeah they're more musical i think with wood drums they end up having like a focus tone that you just want to get rid of because it's like it sounds like someone's hitting a keyboard like what is that note get rid of that yeah yeah there's a note yeah (laughs) i agree so yeah so my pick of the week is tinker what about you buddy (laughs) my pick of the week is also not i guess you could buy it but we're talking about jazz comping i was trying to think of what would be like for me the perfect jazz comping record to for someone to mm. check out and it would be without a doubt miles davis the album milestones and in particular the track straight no chaser it's kind of a medium mm. up-tempo thing it's philly joe yeah. jones on drums and within that one track you can hear him and the band take multiple different approaches to comping behind each soloist there's a slightly different concept so if you just listen carefully you'll hear they shift like Cannibal Adderley is the first soloist, and Philly Joe's just kind of playing off beats, just prodding, just prodding the okay. And then when it goes to Miles' solo, Miles comes in a little bit more mellow, and you, you hear him just kind of reacting to that. Like, how does that change his comping? When they get mm. to Coltrane, this is my favorite part. <laughs> you know, Coltrane just comes, when he plays, it's it's all the ideas all at once, and it's it's beautiful. Right. So the band takes like a big band approach, and they all play a riff. They're playing a four-bar pattern over and over really? and over again. If you're not listening carefully, you don't even notice it. But they're playing this like shout chorus pattern that just keeps going and going and going. It's amazing. And then when Wynton Kelly gets to his solo, the piano solo, Philly goes to the rim click on four. And then halfway through, wow. he says, okay, I'm done with that. Let me just play light quarter notes on the snare drum for the rest of the piano solo. So. So it's literally all five of your favorite approaches. Yeah, they're in all in one track, and the whole record is like that. That band was just on such a – they were like a freight train. They were just so interlocked at that point. But all I think that's just a near-perfect record to hear how jazz comping should be approached. So, so Milestones by Miles Davis Quintet. If you want to just hear one track, Straight No Chaser. That's Boom. my pick. Beautiful, man. All right, buddy. Well, uh, another episode in the can. It is. And I'm going to go get zapped in the eyeballs. 
Man, good luck. And uh, yeah, just know you're doing it for both of us. <laughs> Gonna so. send you half the bill. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can send Amber a, a teaser, a text email, see how that goes. But uh, all right, everybody. Well, I hope we gave you some fun stuff to listen to. If you get a chance to, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a favorable rating. That helps other drummers find this podcast and uh it allows mike and i to keep doing this because we're having a blast with it so everyone have a great week have fun in nashville thanks buddy peace yeah.